It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Taking a step back to look at things with a new perspective. It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner. And good afternoon, I'm Anthony Weiner, and thank you for meeting me in the middle, an hour every Saturday at 2, when we take some steps away from the hot takes of the far left and the far right and try to bring some context to the news of the week or a subject that doesn't find its way into the middle of the conversation enough. We have a great show for you today. It's not going to be a typical show that we normally have on the middle where I take one subject and go into it and it kind of be a subject from the news that I try to provide some context to This being the day before September 11th, uh, we're going to have a little bit of an in-depth conversation about that. We have an amazing guest at the second half of the show, uh, Michael Daly. You probably know him from his days at the Daily News and now at the Daily Beast uh, Pulitzer Prize finalist. He is someone who wrote a book about someone who went down in history on September 11th as being person 0001, the first person who was documented as having perished on September 11th. It's an amazing book. He's an interesting fellow who wrote about it. And he is someone who I'll explain later in the show. Um, this person that this biography is about is someone that touches my life even to this day. Um, the middle every Saturday from two to three at three o'clock, Curtis Sleewell will be coming in for left versus right. He is at the Labor Day parade and he'll be reporting on, on that. We also have some things to talk about in terms of political updates. Will there, will there not be? A debate between Lee Zeldin and Kathy Hochul. I assume that there will be the polling getting back to normal again, showing that Kathy Hochul is leading that. By the way, you can hear us all over the world on WABCRadio.com. You can download the app, and you can also get this program as a podcast shortly after we go off the air. Anywhere you get podcasts or at the Red Apple Podcast Network. If you'd like to reach out to me, it's at Rep Wiener, at R E P W E A N E R on Twitter. And wienerwabcgmail.com. If you'd like to be part of this conversation, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. And I want to thank in advance. We've got Rich and Ryan and Kevin keeping an eye on things. Uh, this was a, a, a wonderful week for me and my family. I mentioned last week that my birthday was coming up. Jordan took care of me. But I really, it's it's really Huma who I have to say thanks to. You know, Huma... You know, I'm sure thinking what would be a great birthday present to get for me, got something for Jordan. We went to see the last day of the Stranger Things experience. I mentioned to you on the show a couple of weeks ago how running up that hill had become this a renewed hit because Stranger Things had become a thing on Netflix. The series, I'm not, I, I stopped watching it a while ago. Jordan is very much into it. It's this immersive experience that was out at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Huma pulled some strings, got tickets for me and Jordan. Jordan and I went. We took the ferry out there and the ferry back. It was a lot of fun. Jordan was thrilled with it. And we both, it's a 1980s period show. So we both dressed up in our best 1980s gear. And I happened to wear my Adidas track jacket that I had it at when I was on the tennis team at the University of New York at Plattsburgh. So I had authentic 80s gear going on. Jordan, who has a big, fluffy, great head of hair, wore a headband and wristbands. He looked great. It was a lot of fun. Jordan is back at school this week. This is his first year of middle school and all that goes with that. 
And among the many things that happens is now when he gets dismissed from school, he doesn't have to have a parent there. He can just go and walk home if he wants, I suppose. I'm still obviously picking him up. The other thing is now he's not with one teacher all day. Now he moves around to class to class, and he's really fired up about that. He's really enthusiastic about what that means, about the independence that he has. I'm sure he'll revert to complaining about school any day, but that's been great. Funny thing this week, he had a play date, had a couple of friends come over, and he takes me aside. His new thing is to say to me, stay out of my way when he's with his friends, but he doesn't want me too far away. So he said to me, Dad, can you walk behind us and not with us when I walk home with my friends? And I actually was considering this. I had talked to him about doing this anyway. And I said, sure, we're only a few blocks away, one, two, three, five intersections maybe. And um, so it's Jordan and his three friends, and they're all joking around, walking up the street. I'm walking behind them by four or five strides, you know, half a, yeah, not half a block. Let's call it a quarter of a block behind. And they get to their first intersection where they have to cross, and I'm on high alert to make sure they do everything right. And there's a bodega on the corner. It's First Avenue and I guess 15th Street or 16th Street. And um, they're standing there, and they're yakking with each other, and they're joking, and they're kidding. And then, and the light changes, and it goes green for walk for them. And they're still standing there, yakking and joking. It changed three more times. They're still standing there. They're, I guess they're so used. Finally, I said, fellas, are you going to cross? My take on it is they had, they're so used to being guided through, the, through their walk that they didn't know that they can just go ahead and walk. And that was... And that was fun. And it's been a joyous time. Jordan is clearly growing up. He needs us less and less. But he doesn't want to go away. He just doesn't want me to stay in his hair. And um, so school is back. School is back also for the public school kids. The streets are teeming. The subways and buses are full up at 3 o'clock and in the morning. So that's nice for the city. Uh, This week also, another episode of Keys to the City, which is a podcast that I do where we take one issue each week. We uh, talk a little about an idea that I have. Then we bring on an expert. Um, We're up to episode 10. This week, though, I've gotten a few calls about this. It went completely off the track. Um, the subject this week, it, lands every, it, it drops every Thursday. The subject this week was my idea in 2013 about dramatically expanding the use of body-worn cameras for police officers. And so every once in a while, what we'll do is we'll go back and look at an idea that I had proposed that got adopted and, again, have an expert come in and opine about, hey, how's that working out for you? So this week we had someone who I, I really like, a guy's named Professor Gerardo, Gerard, yeah, Jerry O'Donnell, um, who, uh, oh, Eugene, forgive me, Eugene O'Donnell. He's a professor at John Jay College and a real expert on things relating to, um, relating to uh, law enforcement. He had admitted a guest on the radio show, and I asked him to come on to talk about about body cameras, and the conversation was a complete train wreck, so much so that, I and the folks here at WABC were thinking maybe we don't even put it on the air because, well, let me give you a little let me give you a little taste. This is about a minute and thirty seconds. This is a little bit, and it's representative. I, arguably, this is even the most the best part of it. And listen to how it sounds, sir. If I could, what? I'm trying to have a conversation about a particular idea, a okay. tree in the forest. I don't dispute that they're intermix, whatever it is. I'm trying to understand whether you believe that cameras, because they bring it, and there are arguments against it. I'm not saying there are not, but you haven't brought one yet. If an argument is, it's a a horrible job and no one likes the police, don't have cameras, I'm not understanding the connection because it could very well be that the cameras help with liability claims. They help with false uh, allegations against police officers. Don't you agree? 
I don't agree at all. The, the reality is that the cameras are here. They're not going that you can't reverse that because you are where you are. But the problem is, again, the police will not. You don't understand a basic tenet of policing, which is it's a voluntary enterprise. At the end of the day, a relatively small number of people carry that job. That that select group what, of people now every government job. What job well, isn't a volunteer? I mean is when somebody's beating up his spouse and there's a need to intervene, you wouldn't take the job, would you, Anthony? What's, of course you, not. It's way too dangerous for me. I, it's amazing that men, that men and women do it. Possibly being criminalized? If, if Wait, you get, possibly, if, any employee of the government is possibly better, criminalized. Why do I say what you're talking about? of the brute who's beating up his wife. It's a difficult job that people are doing right now. Why not have it on camera? They're not doing it right now. That oh, contrary. Okay. The it. ones that are, you're saying there's not a single officer who's doing their job. I'm saying it's okay. Let's bring that down. The- so it's, again, that was actually the the best cut. What was happening here in this interview was that Professor O'Donnell wanted to make a larger point about how policing is police officers are under assault, they're under attack. How policing is not what it used to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I came on because I wanted to talk about this idea of body worn cameras and how sometimes it helps officers, sometimes it, whatever it is. Anyway, the conversation goes on like that for a while. I encourage you to – I can't tell what else to encourage you. I encourage you to listen to it or maybe don't. Next week, this coming Thursday, I'm going to have another conversation with someone who um, who we actually hear about the arguments about for or against uh, uh, cameras. But I have to say this. You know, this is a little bit like the but her emails conversation. You know, sometimes you want to have a conversation with one subject. The other person does not. But it was a little bit of a train wreck. It's the episode I'm least proud of. I call it episode 10.0 because there's going to be a 10.1 coming out on Thursday, and I encourage you to go take a look at it. But I don't want to get too sidetracked on that subject. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some other things. But first, as we do each week, let's take a look at some of the numbers of the week. Our first number this week is number two. That is the number of players that has to be on each side of second base starting next baseball season, meaning – the days of the of the shift are over, putting three guys on one side. And also, you can't be standing on the outfield grass if you're an infielder. Now, I, for the life of me, I, I you know, I, this was the last chance I was going to have to be a Major League Baseball player. I was just going to learn how to hit with a, where they aren't. Like, I don't understand why you can't just beat the shift by training your players to, to slap base hits where the shift was. But that is going to – also, they're going to have bigger bases. They're going to have a shot clock – a shot clock, a pitch clock for the pitcher. Another number, $361.4 billion. That is the number of rubles, according to a document that leaked from the Russian finance ministry that, has, ministry that as of August 28th, has been paid to families of deceased Russian soldiers – now, why is that number interesting? It's interesting because we know that for each fallen soldier, that would mean it's 7.4 million rubles. We know that. Um, that's about $121,000. We know how much they get. So if you do the math, meaning how much the government has paid out, and you divide it by the number that we know they pay to each deceased family, that's 48,759 confirmed dead on the Russian side. I mean, we lost 58,000 in the whole Vietnam War. So that's a little indication there are some real signs that Ukraine is is starting to get the better of things. I mean, obviously, Russia has all the resource advantages in the world, um, but the Ukrainians are definitely pushing them back. Uh, we also heard this week that the Queen had passed away uh, doing some back-of-the-envelope math. 30 is one number. That is the percentage of history 
of the United States of America, Queen Elizabeth was ruling England. Um, if you want to check my math, I took it from the date of enact of, of ratification of our Constitution in 1788, which would be 234 years ago, and divided it by seven, uh, 70 and a half. That's 0. .302. 30% of the entire history of our country, she was ruling. A few more, uh, a few more queen-related numbers: six, fourteen, fifty-nine. She was the queen for six popes, fourteen U.S. presidents, and fifty-nine starting quarterbacks for the Cleveland Browns. I bet you, if I gave Rich enough time, you would have come up with that number, and um, and uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand. That is the number of people that died in the Great Irish Potato Famine. And two million who had to leave the country of Ireland. Now, why do I mention that in this context? Well, I mean, the the legacy of the Queen is not all not a happy one for a lot of people, particularly a lot of people who were colonized. You know, the the, the reason this goes on this list of numbers that go with the Queen. You know, some people are taught that the the Great Irish Potato Famine was entirely an act of God. Well, that's not an, that's not really the whole story. The whole story is that because of the way that they were colonized, they were prohibited. Irish were prohibited from owning their own land, and all they could do was basically lease from the from the Protestant landowners. They could lease Porsche, small portions, and even when the famine hit and the potato crops were ravaged the British still insisted upon exporting out of Ireland the other foods that were being grown there. And um, that's part of the legacy. And there are still a lot of my former constituents who remember that legacy as well. And I know that there has been some commentary in the last couple of days since her death that she did a lot to facilitate the reconciliation. But I don't think that the history is entirely an unvarnished one. But the Queen passed away uh, this this year, and our thoughts are with her and the people of Great Britain. And, of course, um, one number that um, many people will, will know, 343. That is the number of New York firefighters, New York and uh, NYFD firefighters, who perished on September 11, 2001. You know, John Katzmatis, the owner of our station, has encouraged us all to kind of make this a week that we keep in mind, the, the, tun- the Tunnels to Tower Foundation, is one of the organizations that keeps that in our memory. Um, Mr. Siller was at the 100th anniversary commemoration this week of um, WABC. He is someone who reminds us constantly with the all the work the Tunnels to Towers does. Um, I have, obviously, my recollections. I have my story. It's not a heroic one. I was a relatively new member of Congress at the time that it happened. I did represent the communities of Rockaway and Sheepshead Bay, the Irish Riviera, which is also kind of a a civil service mecca. Uh, you cannot shake a, a, a stick in Rockaway without hitting a family Then somewhere or another hasn't served the city or served the country in, in uniform. Um, and, and when we come back from the break, I'll tell you a little bit about what those couple of days were like um, and what I tried to do afterwards. And then at the bottom of the hour, we're going to speak to someone I said 343. Number one on that list was a guy named Michael Judge. And um, Michael Daly will be on with us to talk about his book, The Book of Michael, The Surprising Life and Heroic Death of Father Michael Judge. Thank you so much for being with us. 
on the middle, the day before September 11th is commemorated. It's great to have you along and look forward to seeing you on the other side of the break. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Finding new ways to make change. Reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Welcome back to The Middle. I'm Anthony Weiner. Thank you for joining me here every Saturday from 2 to 3. Curtis Lee comes in at 3 o'clock when we do left versus right. Um, appreciate you tuning in. That was Ryan Adams who brought us back in, and he he is the person that sings the song that is kind of my, I don't know what you call it, like our theme song or our bring in music, my what a standard opening music. I explained back when I started doing this show uh, why I chose that song, that that song, if you watch, it's called New York, New York by a guy named Ryan Adams. And when you, if you ever go look at the video that he did for that song, the the World Trade Towers are featured kind of prominently in it and um, it, 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 in a jarring way that frequently it's still jarring to see that in film. But he filmed the video for that song, New York, New York, on September 10th, I think September 9th, and he made a decision to kind of, just, just go with it, and it's a, basically an ode to New York City. So we're here talking about September 11th. You know, everyone has their story. Mine isn't particularly fascinating or interesting, but I'll share a little bit of it because I was a member of Congress at the time. I hadn't been in Congress very long. I got elected and started serving in January of 99. This was September of 2001, obviously. It was primary day in the mayoral election. Many of you remember that. Um, and what my routine was on primary day, on all election days, whether I was on the ballot or not, I was not on the ballot, it was a municipal election, was that I would go visit the polling places. I would bring cookies, always kind of low-sugar kosher cookies because, one, a lot of the <laughs> poll workers have are, are diabetic and a lot of them are keep kosher, and I would um, put my business card in each one, and it would give me an excuse to go in because, first, a couple of reasons. One, the poll workers, they could go hours without seeing anyone also, those are the most active political kind of apparatchiks in your neighborhood. And so I always did this as a routine. I'm not the only person to do it. I'm sure I learned it from Chuck Schumer or whoever preceded him, Manny Seller or whatever it is. And so I was on my way out the door to do that. Um, and I heard on Imus in the morning, uh, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure um, Bernard was, was – I, I don't know for sure. I'm sure but Bernard was producing at the time. Um and uh, that what was going on, and I turned on MSNBC, which was at the time simulcasting. Imus was not on ABC at the time. I think Imus was on Fan at the time. And my first reaction when I saw this was not what everyone else had, which was, "Oh my God, we're under attack." I'm like, "There's something wrong with the sat with the GPS that led the plane to direct itself there somehow." Like, I, my first thing was, "There's got to be an explanation of an explanation here," and I didn't know what to really do, I felt kind of a sense of, you know, like a lot of people saying, well, what do you do, but particularly as an elected official? And so I thought the best way I can be of 
kind of service is to continue what I was going to do. I mean, not with the cookies, of course, but to go and visit people who are in these polling places thinking that, you know, these are people that were in school buildings and everything else. I wasn't sure if they were going to close the school buildings, what was going to wind up happening. Um, and much of the day I kind of did that. And I remember being in a polling place when someone had hooked up a, an old black and white TV with the rabbit ears and everything when um, when the second tower went down. And um, obviously it was a jarring moment. And I, I kind of had this feeling, okay, I'm a member of Congress. There must be something I'm supposed to be doing I felt very helpless, and so I, I went to my office, which was in the Lundy's building at the time. For those of you who know Sheepshead Bay, Lundy's old-timers remember that. It's one of the largest restaurants, I think, ever. Now it, it had been, I had gotten it reopened as a, as a city councilman, and as a congressman, I made it my office. It had office space in there above the restaurant. And I remember being out on the kind of the deck of, of Lundy's, and Lundy's is in Sheepshead Bay on Emmons Avenue, 1600 Emmons Avenue. And I remember being out on the deck there and embers of paper like confetti were falling down. And this is Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. Think about how far that was. Um, singed pieces of paper, small pieces of paper were landing. Um, and I, I got in my car and I went out to visit the Rockaways because I knew that there would be a lot of families of, again, of firefighters and um, police officers. And along the Belt Parkway, as I headed east, Cars had pulled off to the side of the road. If you can envision the Bell Parkway from about, I don't know, I want to say like exit six, seven, eight, nine, like there you can kind of get a look at, at, the, at the skyline of Manhattan. And cars had pulled off um, and were just staring in disbelief at what they were seeing. And when I got down to the peninsula, the same is true on the north side of the peninsula. You can see the skyline and – it just was wrong. The skyline no longer had the single, the, like everything was disorienting about it. Um, and Wednesday night, it wasn't until Wednesday night, Wednesday during the day, and this was, we had a big briefing and all the politicians were called down there. It was at the old police academy, uh, which is on, I want to say, East 20th Street between first and second. I'm just spitballing here. And I remember, although I was a member of Congress, I was a nothing. I was a pisha. You know, you had senators that were there. You had the mayor, obviously, in charge. You had Governor Pataki. You had, you know, just about every commissioner. Um, Michael Daly, in his in his book, in addition, as he'll share, in addition to being a remarkable story about Father Judge, it, it is probably the single best collection of remembrances about just what those final hours uh, and those hours after September 11th strike we were about. Anyway, we were there, and my colleague, uh, Joe Crowley, was there. And afterwards, we went – this is Wednesday night now – we went with Kevin Farrell, who was the sanitation commissioner. He's actually been – he was actually in the fire department for like 25 years, but he was the acting fire commissioner. Remember, this is the very end of the Giuliani administration. I mean the very, very end. There was an election being held. And so he was the acting – Sanitation Commissioner, if you go to the Sanitation Department website, I don't think they have him listed. But he was the Sanitation Commissioner, and he offered to bring us down, me and Joe, um, to go down just to kind of see for ourselves what was going on. Again, we were all kind of feeling the same sense of the same sense of like, what do we do that to be useful? And um, and I think that um, also Anne Marie and and Anzalone, who was Joe Crowley, Chief Staff, and we went down and we we stood, you know, I guess it was right by where there was a, a former Burger King that was kind of a one of the 
the post that they were they were using as kind of an, an action post where they were um and what I didn't know, and I didn't know then frankly until this morning when I checked in on him and asked him if it was okay if I tell the stories that um Joe at that meeting at the police academy where we were all kind of getting briefed on what the mayor what really what the mayor was doing. We were just basically watching while him and his commissioners did most of the heavy lifting. Um he told me that Someone handed him a piece of paper from, um, I guess, someone in the police department um, saying that his cousin John, um, who was a battalion chief, uh, had probably lost his life. Remember, we didn't know 100% anything at that point. There were still people on that on that mound that were still looking for for survivors. We didn't know what was happening at, at the time. And... Um, and it was a it was obviously a traumatic time and and and, I, and so I kept asking myself and asking my staff and kind of in a prayerful way kind of what do I do and so there was so much to do after the fact um you know there was all kinds of information that the EPA had seriously misled residents of New York City the first responders and the residents down there that the air was safe when it wasn't and we in congress had to investigate that and try to find get to the bottom of of that and then once we did Getting the 9/11 health care bill passed, which has now famously been documented, I've talked about it on this show when we had John Feel on a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, there, the, this is a fact and a wild one. 435 congressional districts. There were people that were affected by 9/11 health problems from all from 434 districts, and yet it took us nearly 20 years to get health care guaranteed for those people. And the reason why that was necessary is that is that most people had health insurance companies or didn't have health insurance that would not cover this stuff. It was an unknown thing. 9-11 illness was not a thing. And especially since, you know, the EPA had said, oh, the air is safe, people were going down. The kind of masks we wear today to get on the train, those were the types of paper masks that were being given out to people when they were on the rubble. Um, Also, there was some work that needed to get done that I did on making sure someone had authority over building collapses to make sure the buildings didn't collapse again in the future, and we passed a law about that. But much of the time after September 11th, I devoted as kind of my signature issue was Saudi accountability, finding out, you know, what the Saudis knew, what their responsibility was. We know that the overwhelming number of the attackers on September 11th came from Saudi Arabia. We know that Osama bin Laden had his the money. He didn't get wealthy investing in Microsoft stock. He got wealthy when the Saudis basically paid him north of a billion dollars to leave them alone. And with that money, he funded madrasas. He funded terrorism all around the world. That accountability that the Saudis have still exists today. They are leading the fight to keep documents away from the families. They are leading the fight to stop them from being held accountable. They've yet to fully account for their actions. And that was something that um, that I kind of leaned into uh, but the, the the city had not was not the same, and unfortunately, Congress, after a brief moment where they kind of lived up to what we talk about here on this show, the ability of the left and the right to not necessarily stop being ideological people that have strong ideologies, but the ability to work with one another, it lasted maybe a couple of weeks, and then it faded away, unfortunately, because the 9-11 health bill became just another piece of legislation that people were saying, well, what did... We want a piece of other action. Most of these people are from New York, et cetera. That changed. It did, though, for those of you who are old enough to remember, and I say that not to be 
not to be glib, but, you know, Jordan and I go to firehouses, and he's just learning and understanding this. He asked me some questions about it today when I told him I was going to talk about this on the show. Um, but we if we would go to firehouses on September 11th. We'll do it again tomorrow and just say a quick hello. You know, you look at these guys. They're young guys. These are guys that, you know, they were kids, a lot of them, when this when this kind of thing, uh, when this happened. So, I mean, the, the, the memory was was lasting, obviously. You know, another way that this impacted me and the work that I did in Congress is not that I'm proud of. I voted for a Patriot Act that I probably, if it were up today, I would look a lot more askance at. Maybe not vote against it, but try to do more to amend it. I voted for sending troops to Iraq, um, which was a mistake, one of the, probably the worst vote I ever cast. And that was to some degree looking at things through the lens. I was very susceptible, like a lot of people were. I was very susceptible to the argument that, hey, New Yorkers have a special obligation to make sure that we're not attacked again. And I think, you know, um, um, so that was a, that was one of the ways it affected me. But obviously also as a member of Congress representing that district in Brooklyn and Queens, I wound up attending a lot of a lot of funerals. And it was there that I heard – the stories of Michael Judge really for the first time. And um, as I said, after the break, we're going to have a guest on who who literally wrote the book on Michael Judge. He's his, his biographer. He did a remarkable job with it, Michael Daly. But um, for me, it was when whenever there was a conversation about the losses on September 11th, Michael Judge's name would come up, a Franciscan priest who was the chaplain of the fire department. And for me, it's particularly moving because today – and a couple of times a week, I attend 12-step meetings in his parish that he made sure were available um, right across the street from the firehouse where he would park his car that he would go. And Michael Daly tells a funny story about what a charge Father Judge had when he first got in and realized he can turn on the lights and cameras and go places. How much fun he had with that. Um, but still, when I go to that church, and I'm going tomorrow again, You'll see them with a soup kitchen in the basement. You'll see AA meetings. You'll see 12-step meetings of every conceivable type. You'll see a a parish that um, and a congregation that is much more Asian probably than Father Judge when he ministered there. Um, you'll see homeless people outside. Um, and so I actually developed a connection to Father Judge that only grew over time. And every once in a while, I'll share in a meeting about the building that we would be sitting in for our meetings. But Father Judge was uh, was designated as Fatality 0001. And when we come back from the break, we're going to have a conversation with um, someone who wrote the book of Michael, The Surprising Life and Heroic Death of Father Michael Judge. And we're not just going to talk about September 11th. We're also going to talk about what led Michael Judge to be in that place at that time. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. Stick around. And thank you for being here on The Middle. And we'll see you on the other side of the break. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Finding new ways to make 
change, reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Welcome back to The Middle. Every Saturday from 2 to 3 at the top of the hour, we will be uh, joined by Curtis Lewa for Left versus Right. Curtis, I'm sure, wants to give Kathy Hochul a hard time about something. At least he's off Eric Adams. He was inducted into the WABC Radio Hall of Fame this this past week. I heard a, some long stories about Curtis Lewa. He's celebrating his 28th anniversary here at the station. This is my 25th show, so that's how long I have to go to catch up to him. So we're talking about September 11th. We're talking about, you know, I shared a little bit about what I was involved with those those early days. And um, and at St. Francis C.C., where I mentioned is, you know, still a, 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 right across the street on 31st Street between 7th and between 6th and 7th um, is a firehouse. And that was where that was the home friary of um, Father Michael Judge. And he was documented as the first person, the first fatality that was documented. Um, he was the chaplain of the fire department. And I want to bring in someone who wrote a book about Father Judge that explains not only what happened on that heroic day, and he does so, in a, in frankly, in, in a way that's that's as good as, as you can really read anywhere. If you want to read 30 or 40 pages of just the, the heroism that went on that day and also the remarkable story of Michael Judge, I would recommend this book. Let me welcome in Michael Daly. Michael, so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So the name of the book is The Book of Michael, The Surprising Life and Heroic Death of Father Michael Judge. By the way, how do you spell Michael in his name? How did he do that? Yeah. Why? Uh, <laughs> a couple of reasons. Um, he spells it just to, to let people know. It's M-Y-C-H-A-L. Uh, right. And you explain in the book, but tell the story. Well, the story is that it started out M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Uh, his, his actual name was Emmett. And when you become a friar, you kind of uh, you acquire a new name. His mother wasn't too happy about that. And it started out as M-I-C-H-A-E-L. And you changed it for two reasons. One was that there was a black basketball player named Michael Thompson, I think. And the other was that at the friary, chores were listed alphabetically. And there were several Michaels, and just out of his sense of fun, he changed it to M.Y. so that he had to do his chores. He didn't have to do his chores until after the other Michaels had. And uh, and Michael's kind of ultimate. I mean, <laughs> now he is. But that 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 story that tells a little bit about kind of he was a playful guy, wasn't he? He was. I mean, well, you jump ahead after nine eleven. There's all these firemen naming. Their kids after uh, Michael Judge, the fire chaplain, not knowing that the name came from a black basketball player. <laughs> so before we get to the story, and I want you to tell it about how he came to be Fatality 0001, there's an interesting part in the book where it in 1986 he crosses paths with two people at the same time that would wind up being very influential in his life, Cardinal O'Connor and Stephen McDonald. And he, if, if I'm reading, if I read the story right, he met them both the same day in 1986. Can you tell that story? It was when Stephen McDonald was a young cop. Um, 
pretty much newly on the job. He's eight months married. His wife is two months pregnant. And on a summer day in Central Park, he walked up on three kids he thought were waiting at the bottom of a hill to rob bicycles. He walked up on them. Just uh, took out a shield and said, fellas, you know, police officer, what's going on? What are you doing? And he saw what he thought was a bulge at the top of one of the kids. So he bent down to feel it. And then out of the corner of his eye, he saw some movement. And he looked up just in time to get shot in the face by a 15-year-old kid. He then lay on his back, and the kid threw it over him and shot him twice more in the face. And uh, he was taken to Metropolitan Hospital, and uh, they said that the officer's not going to make it, but there was a guy named Brian Mulheron, who was kind of the eyes and ears of City Hall. He was known as the Night Mayor. And he said, well, if he's going to die, we're going to at least try to give him a shot at Bellevue. So he got the highway closed down and got Stephen down to Bellevue, and he got to Bellevue, and the doctor there said, well, he'd be better off dead. Um but they managed to keep him alive. Um, but he was paralyzed from the neck down, and he would never again be able to breathe on his own. Um, and at first, he couldn't even talk. But uh, when his wife was seven months pregnant, she placed uh, her tummy against the side of his face, which is the beginning of when he could feel anything, and he felt the baby move. And... Um, at the same time, uh, Cardinal O'Connor was coming in, and at the same time, Michael, the police chaplain, was coming in. He couldn't make it so it, for a few days, and he was filled in by the fire chaplain, and that fire chaplain couldn't get in. So he asked Michael Judge to go up, and Michael Judge went up and um, walked in, and he taught Stephen the prayer of St. Francis, which is, well, making an instrument of your peace. And um, that kind of swirled around in Stephen's head. Uh, along with the fact that he's going to be a father and he would think of what he couldn't do now as a father and that would get him angry but he didn't want to be an angry father and then you know kind of mixed up with Michael Judge and Stephen's own goodness and he ended up deciding uh, he mouthed the words I want to forgive him and he dictated a letter to uh, his wife that his wife read at the son's christening in Bellevue Hospital and the letter essentially said, my badge is a badge of compassion, and I forgive the young man who shot me with the hope he can go on and do something with his life. And that was not the most, at the time, was not the most popular move in the New York City history of New York City Police Department. Uh, a lot of cops were getting killed then. Um, I think eventually he won them over. His message was, uh, love is the way. And that was Stephen. And Michael shared that, and Michael and Stephen became very close. And um, Michael was not so close with Cardinal O'Connor. Well, before you get to that, and, and just to tie these things together, you're going to tell us a little later about the story of the very day, September 11th, but it turned out at the end of his life, was it Stephen McDonald that identified Father Judge's body for the purpose of, of finally declaring well, him deceased? I think that was actually, uh, if I recall correctly, I mean, I wrote the book a while ago. I think there was a detective, Tom Nearney, who was since lost, who uh, identified Michael and actually personally fingerprinted him. That's right. So so uh, at the same time, he meets Cardinal O'Connor, who winds up being a little bit, I don't know, like the yin to, 
to to the yang of of Michael Judge in that this was the the height of the AIDS crisis and Father uh, and Cardinal O'Connor was a bit of was a, a a real well why don't you juxtapose the two of them you've got Cardinal O'Connor as he dealt with the AIDS crisis and tell us a little bit about why long before he was a hero to firefighters Michael Judge was a hero in the AIDS community and the gay community well he was a hero I mean he um there was a time when essentially no priest would say funerals. Um, and Michael was one of the very first. And when he and this was a time when nurses would run in and hold their breasts and put the food down and run out because they didn't want to get this disease. And Michael would introduce himself, but he would walk in and he would start rubbing the guy's feet, which was a way of comforting him and also a way of saying, I'm not afraid. And there was one. I mean, one. There were these stories that would go around that were all true. Um, Michael was at the fiery one day, and he got a call from a guy who said, "You know, your father, Michael Judge." He said, "Yeah." He said, uh, "My partner thinks God hates him, and he's dying. And I wonder if you could come by." So Michael went over, and the guy's in a wheelchair. And Michael asked him. Uh, if he could take communion, and the guy said he thought so. So Michael gave him communion, and then Michael picked him up out of the wheelchair and rocked him and sang to him and kissed him on the forehead. Um, there was another instance where there were twins who died of AIDS, uh, and their fun- they couldn't get a church, so their funeral was held in a rec room in Long Island. And Michael said the funeral mass, and at the end of it, he put his hand over his heart and he started singing "God Bless America," and everybody kind of looked at each other. Was this guy nuts? What Michael was saying is that you know it's our country too, <laughs> and they all started singing "God Bless America." Yeah, and it's interesting for you to use that pronoun. You point out in the book that he would frequently slip into using the first person pearl by saying "we" when having funerals um, yeah. for for basic for for his aides uh, his aides ministry or funerals for. Firefighters, he really saw himself as a member of that community. I know a lot has been made of what his sexual orientation was, but much more importantly, he was seen by that community at a time when they were very, very down on the Catholic Church and on Cardinal O'Connor. He was really seen as almost saint-like in that community. Yeah, he was. And um, someone once said to Michael's twin sister that Michael should be a saint, and she said, I think he would consider that a demotion. (laughs) Let me let me ask you about one other community. I, I I mentioned in in the opening, what a hero he is in a community that I spent time with in with Alcoholics Anonymous and twelve step programs, and he's he's made St. Francis basically a mecca for AA and other twelve step programs. He struggled with alcohol himself, but more importantly, it's the way he viewed his his role. Right? I mean, he he viewed the downtrodden as the reason, and the people that were troubled they they were the reason that he was. I mean, I think he viewed that as the reason that was his calling. That was the reason he was here, right? Well, he thought he thought that's the reason we all are here. I mean, Michael's theology was that just as evil's to be, the devil's to be found in evil, God is to be found in good, and that our duty is to recognize the good and therefore the God in other people, and by recognizing and responding to it, making it stronger. And that was his, you know, uh, I mean, and it crossed all denominations. I mean, you know, oftentimes when a couple would come to him, 
with like a Jewish person and a Catholic person would come to him and one of the, and the Jewish person was going to convert, convert Mike would say no 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 Jews have been around much longer you have to go the other <laughs> way and um but he he I mean there's a beautiful video there was a Jewish hard store hardware store owner from Yonkers whose big wish when he died was to have his ashes scattered by a fireboat in um in New York Harbor. And there's a video of Michael standing on the bow of the fireboat. You can see the Twin Towers. This is in the background, actually. And um, he goes into this thing about uh, God calls us to him. When we die, God calls us to him in accordance to our particular beliefs. In other words, he felt that God calls you when you die. God, Your beliefs determine how God calls you. And so he goes into this long thing about that and he scatters the ashes and then you can hear a guy in the background background go see you morty (laughs) (laughs) but you know and or you could walk around if you walked around manhattan with him midtown manhattan you'd be one homeless person after another go michael and you go hey you peter michael how you doing george i mean he knew them all well, he, you tell, and let's, let me catch up the listeners. We're talking to Michael Daly, the author of the book of Michael, The Surprising Life and Heroic Death of Michael Judge. You know, you talk about that. You tell a very funny little vignette in the story about how he was concerned that the garments that were being collected by the church and redistributed to the homeless were not, they didn't look nice enough. They looked kind of like they made them look like just like bums wearing clothes. And so he insisted that they dressed up. And didn't you tell a story that there was there were complaints from local shopkeepers that they didn't want good looking homeless people around or something like that? <laughs> something like that, yeah. But I mean but I mean the main thing was I mean I was with him there's two things that I think say more than anything about him and the homeless was that one, I was with him in rush hour on Seventh Avenue and this guy came up to him. Michael's in his habit in sandals and he goes, You a priest? And he goes, Yeah, I guess I am and the guy said, then bless me. Michael put his hands on the guy's shoulders and touched his forehead to the guy's forehead and just stood there for about five minutes in the middle of Rush Hour in downtown Manhattan, which is a long time. Michael stepped back and said, uh, just stepped back, and the homeless guy said, holy shit. And Michael said, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, yeah. And the other was there was a guy, after he was dead, there was a guy lying in front of St. Francis who had on three pairs of pants undone, no shirt. And I went up to him, and Michael used to fold a dollar bill lengthwise when he gave people money just to make it seem less like a handout. So I did that, and I gave it to him. I said, this is from Father Michael Judge. And he stood up, and he said, Father Michael Judge was my spiritual advisor. And Mm -hmm. there's a little courtyard next to the church with a poor box and he walked into there put the dollar bill in the poor box and walked off <laughs> wow well I, I, let me ask you but we have to go to a break can you stick with us because i do want to talk a little bit about the day of september can you stick with us through this break and to, so we yes. can wrap up the conversation i really do appreciate it. we're going to go to a break when we come back we'll have more with michael daly the host of the host the author of the book of michael the surprising life and heroic death of michael judge this is the middle we'll see you on the other side Talk Radio 77 WABC. Finding new ways to make change. Reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. And welcome back to 
the middle every Saturday from 2 to 3 at the top of the hour. I'll be joined by Curtis Lee. We're right now we're talking to Michael Daly, the author of the book of Michael, The Surprising Life and Heroic Death of Father Michael Judge. Michael Judge on September 11th was the um, was the chaplain of the fire department. There's a remarkable video that's available online of some remarks that he made just the previous day uh, to a, at a dedication of, of a firehouse in the Bronx. But, um, Michael Daly, tell us a little bit about that that day. You know, he's designated as the first fatality. He shows up at Ground Zero. There's a video, that the last that I've seen of him, shows him seemingly mumbling to himself, kind of it seems almost like he's praying to himself. Paint a little bit of a picture about what he found when he got there and what he did in this moment of crisis. I think he never spoke to himself. I think that was praying. That was Michael praying. Um he uh, he went down. He he was in his room at the fiery, and uh, someone told him the planes had hit the trade center. So he went right down. He hopped in the car, hopped in a vehicle with a couple of firemen. There was a firehouse across from the fire. He went downtown with them, and he went into the south tower. I mean the north tower, which was the first one hit. Um, and he was in the lobby praying. Um, and it was pretty jarring because the jumpers, you could hear these jumpers and they would resound through the lobby every time they hit. You can see Mike was frightened. Um, and he's the only one there that doesn't have a tool or a hose or a radio. Or, you know, this, the only reason for him to be there is to pray and to witness it. And the guy from the fire patrol came up to him and said, Father, I think you need it upstairs. So he went up, and what the guy meant was that there were just bodies. The, the plaza, which is on the next level up, the plaza outside the tower is just littered with bodies. Um, so Michael's standing at a plate glass window, praying to God for it to stop. Um, one fireman could hear him praying, praying to God for it to stop. And kind of in answer to that prayer, a body landed right outside the plate glass window and sprayed it with blood. And uh, and then there was a rumbling, and Michael must have thought that the tower he was in was coming down. So he ran out into the plaza, but then he must have realized that it wasn't the tower he was in that was coming down. It was the other one. So he ran back into the tower on the second floor, and he's going to the escalators. And meanwhile, the south tower has collapsed. And the windows down on that, on the the big windows down the south tower on that side were out, and it's like a hurricane of debris came through those windows and went right up the escalator. Michael must have felt like the thing had circled around and gotten him. And uh, a while later, um, there was a couple of firefighters, including Chief Hayden, who ran the operation in the lobby, came across Michael. Um, and I think he he had, didn't have a mark on him. I think he'd literally been frightened to death. Hmm. And uh, but in the way that that myths start um, earlier, there had been uh, a guy named Danny Sher was a firefighter who was killed by a jumper um, outside the South Tower. I think he's probably the first firefighter killed. Um, and a call went over the radio for the fire chaplain. Um, 
I don't think Michael heard that. He certainly didn't get over that way. But between that call and Danny Sher being hit, all of a sudden everybody was saying Michael Judge was killed by a jumper while he was saying last rites for a firefighter outside the tower. And that was not true. Um, and then the firefighters who count, found him in the escalator carried him outside, and they put him by an ambulance. And then the North Tower came down, and his body was hit by debris. I see. Well, we just uh, have we just have about about thirty seconds left, and I, I just yeah. really want to thank you for 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 joining us. And the the story that you tell that was just a, a moment of it. There's a poignant moment where you report that Chief Pfeiffer was saying over the. PA system, don't jump. We're coming to get you. And and this this was the final chapter for 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 Michael Judge. I want to thank Michael Daly for joining us today and 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 helping. It. The book is called The Book of Michael: The Surprising Life and Heroic Death of Father Michael Judge. It is a remarkable tale. You'll find yourself giggling at times. You'll find yourself crying at other times. He was a hero to people who had AIDS, people that were alcoholics, all New Yorkers, and especially for firefighters. And I want to thank Michael Daly for joining us. And perhaps the last thing for this show is he had his own prayer, and I'm going to read it to you because it's got its own cleverness to it. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Let me say what you want me to say and keep me out of your way. That was Father Michael Judge's prayer. Thanks for Michael Daly for joining us. Thank you for Rich, Ryan, and Kevin. Um, We are going to be back on the other side with Curtis Lewa and Left Versus Right here on The Middle. See you every Saturday. See you next week. And um, may God bless the United States of America and our glorious city. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.